we've massively oversimplified what burnout is. And in part because we think mm. about it just about stress. So we know that there's a stress root or there, you know, we see people who are stressed when they are burned out, burned out. So that takes us kind of into the, the well-being lens and the throw some stress management strategies at it. And I think that's part of what gets us into that self-care lane, probably a little bit too quickly. Um, But burnout is actually something that's fairly complex. And there is really no, like, I think, true opposite of burnout. So oftentimes, um, you know, folks like to paint engagement as the opposite of burnout. And there's a lot of research showing that it's its own thing. There's also interesting research talking about how you can be highly engaged and also burned out. Hi, welcome to the Big Self Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Prevost. And I'm your host, Shelly Prevost. So we know that burnout has long since been gripping us before the pandemic even happened. We've become a nation that we're just suffering high levels of burnout. It's probably one of the most discussed and far-reaching problems in the workplace today. And we're covering it from a wide variety of perspectives on our podcast here at the top of the year. We've been talking with business professionals, trained coaches, researchers, and leaders trying to get a little bit, just to learn a little bit more each and every time on the podcast. And today we're talking with Paula Davis, author of a new book, Beating Burnout at Work. She is the founder of the Stress and Resilience Institute, and she's providing us with a framework that helps prevent employee burnout through a holistic approach. It's research driven. It's an actionable book. We highly recommend it. And it's the first that we've found to explore a comprehensive approach for building this resilience that you need of teams of all sizes. And her framework works with organizations that range from Harvard Law School to Walgreens. And it's aimed at reshaping the organizational policies, decision-making, even political, social, and economic issues that all contribute to workplace stress. Paula Davis, welcome to the Big Self Podcast. Hi, Hi, thank you so much for having me. We are so glad you're here. I have to tell you, first of all, before we launch into our conversation, I have followed your work for over a decade. You don't know this. I, uh, in 2006, discovered positive psychology. I had just started my uh, doctorate program and then graduated in 2010 with my dissertation in gratitude and resilience. That's right. And so that's right around the time I found you. And so um, I knew you were at the MAP program. And in hindsight, I probably could have, should have, would have done that program. I <laughs> um, didn't, but have followed your work and uh, in so many facets that you you have your hands in a lot of different areas. And so um, when Chad... I think it was even like you told me that that we were having this conversation with Paula and I was like, oh my gosh, Paula Davis-Slack, I've never (laughs) followed her for so long. So it was very serendipitous. So I'm glad um, that you're here today. Oh, Welcome. thank you. No, that's thank you for connecting those dots as well. So I always love, I always love to know that. And so yeah. So when you discovered positive psychology, I was in the thick of my law practice, really a couple of years from from about to go through burnout, quite honestly. And so you discovered yeah. positive psychology just a few years before I did. But um, and I love the gratitude and resilience intersection, of course. So that's fantastic. Yes. Yeah. So it was right around that time I, I became the director of happiness 
at a venture capital firm um, in 2010. And so the few years after that was when I was really knee deep in and operationalizing positive mm-hmm. psychology within these startups. So anyway, well, our little background. That, that is really cool. And, you know, one of the things that that startup world um, has, you know, was getting wrong and is still getting wrong is this has led to the burnout epidemic. They're living with chronic stress, which is what Paula's book um, seeks to her thesis is about a specific way of beating burnout. Um, so, Paula, just to kick us off, could you tell us what are people still getting wrong <laughs> about this idea of how they can beat burnout? Yes. So a big part of what folks are still getting wrong is thinking about burnout as really something that is an indiv- like placing it on individuals' shoulders to um, sort of shoulder the burden in terms of, of fixing the issue and trying to figure out what the issue is. And so I will tell you when I um, got out of my own burnout and started my process of recovery, um, I thought the same thing. My first thought was, where did I go wrong? How did I mess this up? What stress management memo did I miss? And I I really was hard on myself for quite a while about all of this. And it wasn't until I really dug into the research and started to work with people and teach and train and coach them that I then realized I had this, I call it my 10-year unfolding aha moment that when we're talking about Mm -hmm. burnout, even though it shows up as an individual, what we think is an individual issue, right? It's really the individual manifestation of a workplace culture and system problem. So if we're seeing burnout happen among individuals in our teams and in our organizations, we really have to take a step back and say, well, wait a second, what are the systemic issues? What are the, what are the larger issues at play here? that are really causing individuals to have this experience with their work. And we have to address those too. So it's not like we have to completely throw out the me part of the equation. So I think about it as taking a me and a we approach, but we have to really pull back instead of looking at it through, you know, a hundred percent, let's fix the individual and, and, and offer individual strategies and go, whoa, we've, we've been sort of, you know, misjudging this the entire time. And we have to really start thinking about this in terms of, you know, our workplace culture, the systems that we have or don't have in place, how our teams function, how leaders are developed, all of that. And in even bigger macro issues in terms of, you know, just what, you know, industries are experiencing in a whole host of respects, all of that plays into the burnout conversation. And so that's been a really big piece of what I've what I've been talking about certainly over the last year, year and a half is, is that layer. Cause there's a lot of education that really has to be done around this topic. I love that. So um, I gr- could not agree more with you. I think that we have over indexed um, a lot in the last few years um, around self care. Yes. Um, and I think that's driven a lot from that industry too. If, you know, we think about um, kind of the, the health, what you had a whole podcast on this, didn't you? When you were talking about the industry and how it's different industries and retail really are promoting uh, self care as this like antidote to burnout, right. and and I've and I've struggled with that. Yes. I think there's a piece of the me, but we are forgetting this kind of collective care um, that is really essential. And we've been talking lately with some folks in the food and beverage mm-hmm. industry and like the rampant burnout that's happening, um, in that industry. That's so counter those conditions are so counter to how human beings need to flourish. So nobody can, 
can thrive in in some of these environments. Yeah, so I'm just, glad that you're taking that. Well, I think while position. we're having this this conversation, uh, to add to that, you know, is the is the complexity and the challenge of if you're in a competitive industry, how do you stay competitive without burning everybody out? Um, and also, there are these leaders. So it reminds me of the food and bevs. There's leaders that are seeing some burnout in their employees. They wish they knew what to do, um, and they're not equipped to do it. And what feels so big, it's so behemoth is the word I think. Yes. How do you think about that, Paula, when you think about these cultures and systems and industries that are built on these conditions that where people can't flourish. What? How do you work? With it's that? really hard, and that's part of the reason why I, I really kind of wanted to intentionally think about that when I was writing my book because I sat here thinking to myself, "Well, we can't just keep approaching this through the lens of just the individual." We know there has to be a systemic component to it, but I can't also just fix an organizational culture. I can't walk into an organization and say, hey, let's just change the entire way you've been doing things for the last you know, 100 years or what have you. And so um, what felt manageable to me and where I wanted to start and what just made logical sense to me was um, thinking about it through the lens of teams. Um, first and foremost, I think of teams as little mini systems that exist within the larger organizational system. So to me... If, if I can work with a team, no matter how small the team is, and help them understand, and, and, and not only is a team a mini system, I think about team, I like teams because you can talk at the team level collectively. You can talk about leaders and, and approach through leadership strategies, and you can also talk about individual contributors as being part of the context of the team too. So it allowed me, I felt like, to hit on all of the different constituencies that I think needed to needed to be involved with this. Um, but again, it sort of just felt more manageable to me. Like if I can educate teams, one team at a time even, to be able to really put the right, cre you know, create, proactively create or design the right type of environment that we know can slow burnout down, doing that and practicing that will hopefully see positive results for the team that will have ripple effects throughout the organization. And then we can start to kind of broaden that out team by team. And so, so that's at least mm -hmm. in my mind, how I felt that this could be yeah. tackled in, in a, in a manageable way, in a logical way. I love it. It's, it's such a, it's an innovative uh, solution because, you know, we talk a lot about the self. It all begins with the self. Then you also hear a lot about, it's top down leadership has to, you know, set the example. And then some people go, yeah, but really our whole entire civilization and culture needs to change. And that feels a little overwhelming. Um, so yeah, the team's approach. I, I love it. Beating burnout at work with, and how, how teams, I like your team centered approach. I'm curious about your, your, and your acronym primed. And your approach, uh, the primed approach for how you work with teams, if you could uh, explain that. Sure. To us. And so I think some of this ties back to what you were talking about earlier around, um, you know, how burnout sometimes feels daunting. And I think that where we've also gone wrong with this conversation is we've massively oversimplified what burnout is. And in part because we think mm. about it just about stress. So we know that there's a stress root or there, you know, we see people who are stressed when they are burned out, burned out. So that takes us kind of into the, the well-being lens and the throw some stress management strategies at it. And I think that's part of what gets us into that self-care lane, probably 
a little bit too quickly. Um, But burnout is actually something that's fairly complex. And there is really no, like, I think, true opposite of burnout. So oftentimes, um, you know, folks like to paint engagement as the opposite of burnout. And there's a lot of research showing that it's its own thing. There's also interesting research talking about how you can be highly engaged and also burned out. And so... So, so that's the first lesson is that, that the approach to solving burnout, because it's a complicated thing, there is no one size fits all approach. And the former lawyer in me hates that, right? Cause I want to process. I want to be able to tell somebody like, do this first, do this second, do this third, and all will be well. And that's just not how the world of, of burnout, you know, prevention works. And so. That landed me on this model because I knew there were going to have to be different pathways that that teams and leaders and individuals were going to have to look at in order to create this this right type of environment that slows burnout down. So I just dug into the research and I wanted to read everything that I could about, you know, whether it was resilient teams, high performing teams, thriving teams, flourishing teams, anything that intersected with teams to see if I could figure out, you know, what were some of the commonalities? What were really the entry points? What were, what was, what was all of the research and in part, you know, all of what I've, you know, sort of gathered myself saying in terms of the muscles or the competencies or the pathways that teams really need to develop. And what came out of that was the model that I put together. So, so really helping teams understand that these are the different aspects that need to be created. And that's also why I created my resilient teams inventory because, you know, back to the, you know, it's not a one size fits all approach. You don't have to do these and probably don't, won't do these steps in order. Some teams are doing some of this well already. And so the inventory is a little bit of a diagnostic tool to help teams realize, you know, where where are some of our shortfalls? Where do we maybe need to up our game a little bit? And let's start there with those pieces and, and sort of work work from there. So so the, the model is really just a number of different entry points for teams, all we know very important to creating that type of environment that slows burnout down. Yeah, would you walk us through what these stand sure. for? The P, there's there's actually two Ps within the P. So the, the first P is um, psychological safety. So I find that this is, when I when I get a chance to talk to leaders, this is almost always the concept that people really gravitate to. And I love it because it is one of the foundational elements of building a resilient, thriving, flourishing, high-performing team. It's going to be hard to really do the rest of what we're going to talk about without having this layer in place. And that's it's psychological safety is just trust. It's trust and cohesion um, among our groups and among our teams. And so that's foundational. The other foundational piece is um, psychological needs. So just um, I've relabeled that into um, our ABC needs. So the fact that we need a lot of control, like autonomy, control and flexibility around our work. The B is belonging. We want to know that we're showing up to a place, a team that cares about us, where we know that people have our back and we can be our true authentic self at work. And the C is competence. We want to feel like we're growing and developing as professionals. We're given stretch assignments. We have learning and development opportunities available to us. And so, so that psychological safety plus those ABC needs really form a very, very strong kind of core foundation for building the right type of environment that we want to see 
The R is relationships. So, you know, Shelly, you certainly know this through your research. I mean, you, you can't get to resilience or happiness or thriving or flourishing or any of these positive things that we want to see um, without having some semblance of high quality connections or relationships. And so, so that piece or component is really important. Uh, the I is impact. And so it's where I wanted to talk about that sense of really knowing do, do people know, and most of us don't, I don't think, have a good sense of the impact that we're making in our work, whether it's internal to the organization mm-hmm. or external to the organization? How is our work, you know, sort of influencing our clients and helping helping the people, helping the people that we serve? And it also includes meaning. So having a, a strong sense of for your own self, you know, the work that you're doing is 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 meaningful. And I think the meaning and impact conversation is definitely an area that we need to up our game on in the world of work. Um, the E, or I'm sorry, the M is mental strength. So I think this is an under-discussed aspect of, you know, kind of the environment that slows burnout down. And that is individually and then collectively as teams, do we feel confident in our ability to overcome obstacles and challenges and deal with the, the roadblocks and the issues that we have in our way? Um, do we Are we thinking in a counterproductive way such that it's wasting a lot of energy and it's interfering with team dynamics? So I talk a lot about catastrophizing and overthinking and those thinking traps that we fall into, like jumping to conclusions and overgeneralizing and mind reading and things like that. So so that's really a central part to the resilience piece of things. Um, the E, I always confess, I needed an E to work with the model, and so I called it energy. <laughs> um, but it's really um, where, again, we can talk about additional entry points around you know, what leaders can do to minimize stress for themselves and for their teams and positive emotions and things of that nature kind of go into that bucket. And then the D is design, and it is just some ideas both for individuals and, again, collectively for the team to talk about or to think about just little ways that they can um, sort of tweak their world of work if if they want to sort of redesign in kind of a basic or simple way some aspects of their work, you know, some ideas or strategies for them to think about. So I have to go back to the mm-hmm. E real quick because I that may be my favorite one, actually. I've been doing a lot of thinking. So we work with the Enneagram with, uh, with teams and leaders and have I've been chewing on this lately. Um, I've met some folks who are doing some work around embodied leadership and the energy that people come to their work and their teams and their, you know, how they guide and lead others. And I think that's such an unconscious uh, blind spot for us that we don't always know that energy that we're bringing. And we do a lot around uh, instincts. Mm-hmm. So we have these dominant instincts. And I'm starting to think that and believe and see that the friction that happens on teams is a mismatch of energy. Interesting. More than a mismatch of personality types. Big and you know, and so your your emphasis, your added e there, I think is really important. Um, when we have yeah, more than just for the vowel, yes, more than just yes. the vowel. Although yes, it does perfectly fit with your acronym. But I I think there's something to that that we um, you know, we need to be researching more. We need to be studying more, looking at more how these mismatched energies really create assumptions, wrong assumptions about. Um, expectations and how we work because we're just not all working on the same page here. Would you agree yeah. with that? I mean, based right. on the energy work? 
Well, yeah, and 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 one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you, Paula, and and that I, I really dig the idea of your book. We've got a digital copy, and we just began it, uh, but we're like we're curious about what how we can you know apply some of these things. Especially, yes, we are working with through the lens of the enneagram, but you also do have to get specific with you know how do you help teams and. This, like you said, burnout is complex. Mm-hmm. Right. So what are a few measures, Paula, that you would say that leaders can take to help prevent or slow down, as you've been saying, burnout among their teams? Yeah. So you, I, we can look at this. We can look at the word measure in a couple of ways. We can think about it through the lens of, you know, like an official measure or more an empirically validated measure or even not an empirically validated measure or um, you know, something like my resilience teams inventory. So I, it's always the place where I encourage folks to start uh, on their teams because if if it does nothing else than get you talking about what how you're seeing your mm-hmm. team exist and function, I think it's a great starting point. And so, um, so mm. so really using that as as a platform because I've found you know for the folks who have taken it, there's really um, it promotes some interesting conversation. The, a perfect score is 50. I've never seen a team score higher than 42, and most are in the I would say low 30s, low to mid 30s or so. Um, you know, indicating that there's definitely some things that are going well, but definitely some areas of opportunity as well. So I think you need a starting point of some sort, right? And so instead of sort of again with the complexity of burnout, kind of randomly kind of attacking, you know, different components, really see, you know, and as a leader, it's, it's interesting when leaders take the inventory, I encourage them then to have the rest of the team take the inventory too. So are you as a leader seeing the same thing that the team itself is seeing also, because there could be a disconnect there as well. Um, so, so that's good. And I think, I find that by and large, there's almost always a psychological safety component to shore up. And so that's also one of the first starting places that I encourage leaders to go to is really looking at, you know, do you, have you built the right type of environment that is promotive of that trust and cohesion? And there's almost always places to shore up there. So in the book, I talk about very specific behaviors, both for leaders and for the team collectively to be paying attention to, to really make sure you know, everybody has an important role to play in developing trust. And it's one of those things that is really fragile. You have to really be consistent at working at it, and then it can fall apart pretty easily. And so once it falls apart, it's hard to get back. And so it's a very intentional practice there. Um, and so then the other piece that I encourage leaders to focus on after those is to think about, then I talk about, you know, some of the key resources that we know slows burnout down. And so when I say resource oftentimes to a team or to a leader, they oftentimes will immediately think personnel, finances, equipment, more of those tangible resources. But what I'm talking about in the burnout research, when I say resources are motivational and energy giving aspects of your work that oftentimes we don't even realize are motivational or energy giving aspects of our work that we should be doing more and that we should be prioritizing. So it's things like transparency and clarity are you being as transparent and clear as you could be? Could you, you know, I, I talk to so many leaders and people who shoot emails off that say, come see me now. And that's all it says. And so you've now <laughs> caused somebody to catastrophize probably because they're going to assume that you're going to, you know, tell them something horrible has happened. And so 
It can be as simple as adding two or three more sentences to an email or taking 10 additional minutes maybe in a Zoom meeting or what have you to make sure that the person or the people who you're talking to are very clear about their roles. Um, that regular feedback and recognition, just checking in on your team, um, talking about you know, a story, just sharing a story of a time when you overcame a challenge. It could be a sh sharing a story about um, how the team's work is making an impact within the organization because, you know, you just got great feedback from maybe the president of the organization or what have you. You want to share that with the rest of the group. And so, so there's a lot of those little small entry points in the resource bucket and other TNTs, as I call them, tiny noticeable things that um, little behaviors, little questions, little frameworks that leaders and the teams collectively can really start to work on. Then it's not that you have to pick all of them. It's like, you know, pick one, right? If you don't thank people enough, start there and just, you know, figure out how to up your game in that regard. So, so there's lots of those little pieces um, where folks can start, but those are kind of the big if I was going to give a sequence, that's kind of where I would start with an inventory or an assessment of some sort. Um, see where those, see where some areas need to be shored up. Um, probably doing a little bit of work around psychological safety and trust, and then really focusing on in increasing some of the resources that we know slow burnout down. Yeah, and in so much of the, the coaching specifically that I do with um, executives and leaders is helping them see what they can't see, like really making some of that unconscious stuff more conscious, that they're aware of it. Because I think that they are leaders um, are endorsing and modeling behavior that they may not even be aware of. And so they're they're saying one thing, but did, what, does, what do those actions actually well, say? And so some yeah. of the questions... No, I was yeah, just going to say, sorry to interrupt you. As that, that's huge. And I, I just wanted to capitalize on what you said because I talk in the, in the energy chapter about detecting your icebergs, your core values and beliefs about the way you mm. think the world should operate. And so I find that when I have the one-on-one the -on -one coaching, I think, I don't know that I've had a one-on-one -on -one coaching session with anybody where this topic hasn't come up. And oftentimes it translates mm. into things. Um, so I was working with an associate general counsel um, in a in a law department, and she had a really strong belief around response time to internal business clients. And I can't remember exactly how she phrased it, but it was something along the lines of like, in order to be perceived as a good lawyer or or a valuable team member, you must be you must be responding to clients within 24 hours. It was something along those lines. And what she was then doing is that she, what what started to happen is that she started to judge the people on her team who weren't quite fitting that same sort of model, right? So maybe sometimes. Because of busyness and other things, it took somebody a couple of days to get back to an internal business client. And so she started to really hone in on the people who weren't sort of following that same belief. And it caused a lot of micromanagement tendencies. And it was really starting to fracture the cohesion and the trust of the team. And so when we identified that, mm -hmm. we could talk about it. And I said, you know, it's not bad that you have a core value or belief around response time. I mean, it's what's a large part of what's made you a really good lawyer, but it's now interfering with how you're leading and how the team is, is functioning and interacting. And so what we ended up doing was she called a team meeting and she just decided, she's like, I'm going to put this to the team. What do we all think collectively is an appropriate response time for our internal business clients? Recognizing that you got to have a little flexibility in there, right? Because life happens and other things happen and you can't make it such a hard kind of a hard line answer. And so mm -hmm. she she just noticed an entire shift in her team when they all had buy-in to kind of co-creating 
what this, um, you know, kind of response style or, or timeline really looked like. And she could then, you know, take a load off her shoulders because she wasn't having to be like militant and like follow everybody and like track everybody and, and watch them like a hawk. And so it made her um, just feel a little bit more at ease in her leadership. So, but again, the root of that was that core value and belief that, you know, she's not consciously thinking every day when she's, you know, going into work, but as inserting itself in, in interesting ways. So I agree with you. Yeah. And we have this operating system that's always working that we're most of, most of us, most of the time aren't really aware of, but what you made me think of was this, is that this idea of power Mm. sharing in a team. Um, Also like, you know, even in startups, we know that um, sharing power creates new ideas. Uh, It creates innovation uh, and I think the the foundation of that is the psychological yeah. safety that mm-hmm. we all know is important. Mm-hmm. But how do you uh, how do you see that working? Because I, you know the the lack of power and control and personal agency is one of the big pieces, the kind of tipping points for yes. burnout. Um, which makes me think that okay, sharing power would be helpful. So is that something that you see? And I, in my experience, the less health, healthy teams really struggle with that. Um, and so is that something that you've seen or addressed, like how to help help um, in help teams move toward more power sharing rather than hoarding? And, um, you know, I think oftentimes as, as out of a feeling of mm-hmm. lack or unworthiness mm-hmm. that I have to hold on to mm-hmm. power. Uh, I can't give mm-hmm. it away because giving away is, is mm-hmm. threatening. Um, but yet that's the thing that we know teams need to do more of and leaders need to do more of. How would you, how do you? Yeah, that's a, that? that's a, fan, a fantastic way of looking at it. And I don't know that I've ever really looked at it through the power sharing lens, like, like thinking about it through those terms, but, um, but certainly it comes up a lot. And, and part of it also, I tend to be able to key in on those things more when I do more of the one-on-one coaching, because again, it oftentimes will come up in those phrases, those core values and beliefs about the way we think the world should operate. I have to be in control all the time or else things will go wrong. Um, If I can't do something perfectly, then I shouldn't do it at all. It's It's those really powerful kind of themes that a lot of people and a lot of leaders tell themselves about the way that the world of work needs to operate. And Another piece or component that I think is an influence, and it doesn't happen in all industries, it depends on what you kind of what you do, but I see it on a lot of the professional services firms that I work with, is this notion of like the producer-manager dilemma, right? I've got to wear my leader hat and somehow be competent at that, and that's a completely different skill set than the actual doing of the work. Like, I have to do the accountant work, I have to do the legal work and produce that, and those two roles are at odds or at tension a lot. And sorting through that can be an interesting conversation. And so um, I think one of the most valuable pieces of psychological safety and this whole power conversation is admitting when you don't know something. When a leader can stand up and say, I've never seen this before. I don't know how to do this. This is confusing to me. Um, This is something new. This is an issue I haven't had to deal with before. Here's a way that I failed or a way that I didn't meet a challenge. So, so, so hard for people generally to do, but especially leaders, because I think it, it makes them feel that they're giving up power. I think it looks like weakness. They feel it looks like weakness, but in, but it's received as strength 
a sign of strength from everybody else because they're like, oh, thank goodness. I don't have to. Be- How do we get yeah. people to see it that way? But they but so the, they, they feel like often they have to yes. respond to their investors, right? They have to like act like or they their shareholders know. or their boss. Yeah. Or, I mean, that I, to- I, I beat my head against a wall trying to help people see everybody else sees that that vulnerability as strength. You're, you, this is, we want you to say, Hey, can you help me with this? Let's figure this out together. This isn't something I've, I'm used to or I've experienced before, but, um, but to, to armor up. I was going to just thinking about her, right? There's moments, a lot of shame associated with that. Yeah. Like, yes, there is so much shame. Um, and, and at core, I think that is probably the word that makes the most sense, but, um, You know, I don't know how to help people really begin to be a little more countercultural and embrace that level of vulnerability with teams. It's it's so so hard. hard. And here's one of the one entry point that I've just been kind of playing around with a little bit. And I didn't even I wasn't even connecting the dots with this in terms of, you know, what I'm about to tell you with kind of the psychological safety or trust conversation. And I was speaking to a group of um, construction industry CEOs and they were fascinating. And I mean, they really, I mean, it was, it was an interesting conversation. And um, I was talking about a framework around listening and how oftentimes as teams and especially as leaders, we don't listen to understand. This is Kate Murphy's work in her book, You're Not Listening. I don't know if you've encountered that, but it was it's a fascinating read. Mm-hmm. And she talks a lot about um, the difference between listening to learn or listening to understand versus listening to fix versus listening to win. And I think as leaders, we're so in the mindset of it's our role and responsibility to always have the answer, to fix the problem, to look, you know, to the outside world, like it's all going good. We've got it all okay. And our ducks are all in a row and things like that. And and I can't, I can't reveal any weakness whatsoever or fill in the blank. I might lose my job. People will criticize me. Um, people will say I can't hack it. And, and some of that might be true depending on company culture. But a lot of times it's stories that we're telling ourselves. And so we jump right into the listening to fix, especially piece as a leader. And it was the construction CEOs who really tied this up for me. And they said, wow, they said, we didn't realize that we're doing this a lot and that it can inhibit trust. If somebody is just coming to us to vent or to express an issue with something, or just to tell us that, that there's a situation going on and they don't need us or want us to fix it in the moment. They just want us to be, they just want to be heard. They just want me as the leader to understand their situation and know what's going on, but then to take a step back and kind of let me handle it over here or just to kind of clue you in, like you don't always have to jump in and fix. And when you try to do that, you can really shut down a lot of those trust dynamics. And so, so that's just something, you know, I don't know that that's, I think this is a complex answer and this is just one of the pieces of it that I've been really just kind of noodling around with, because I think there's something to be said. And I think there's something there in terms of that connection. Yeah. Cause it makes me think of what we were talking about earlier with this over indexing mm-hmm. on the me of burnout. And I do think there is something important, especially those in leadership positions to think about, okay, what, what am I showing up with? What assumptions, what um, mm-hmm. mindsets that, that I am contributing to the yes. team and the conditions that then turn around and impact me with 
burnout or stress or, you know, all the complex kind of symptoms that come from that. So while we, it is, it is micro and macro, like we have to be responsible for what we bring to the culture, to the team, um, not only for our own well-being, but for the the conditions that we are co-creating with everybody else. And so that, I think it's, you know, it's both of those. And so, yeah, we need to um, shine a light, I guess, on both aspects of it. Well, it's yeah. hard too. Yeah. I just wanted to add that, you know, a lot of these leaders, they get to this leadership position by never admitting failure, by maybe not burning out. They're actually passionate and type A people. I did it. Why can't you? Yeah. 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 It's, this, it's yeah. this crazy, I don't know what to label it. It is, I hear this so much. It is talking out of both sides of their mouth because it is, first of all, they say, I did it. You should too. Basically what, what I heard from my soldiers when I was doing my army work, you know, it's the suck it up and drive on, right? I came through the system this way. So mm-hmm. you're going to come through the system the same way too. And what a horrible way to think about like leading. It's um, I've had people on the, on the receiving end of it, think of it and use the word hazing. Like that's how it's sometimes being received on the employee or the recipient, kind of the lower level person side of the equation, right? It's yeah. like, you know, but you, you, when you were going through it, you didn't like it and you were thinking to yourself, well, this, this isn't right or this is wrong. And so horrible to then, you know, think about replicating that now when you're in a position of power. And so, but so in the same breath though, they also say, well, oh, you know, I recognize that that was so wrong, or I recognize that, you know, I should have asked for more work-life balance, or I think it's great that some of these younger professionals are seeking to have more work-life balance. And I don't know what to call that because it's a very powerful feeling of, no, you need to do it the way that I did it. But then they try to water it down a little bit with the, I also see the kind of the positive side. And I it, I don't know, it's a paradox or a mashup. I don't know what to call it, but it's, I hear it with such frequency with people. Yeah. And I, you know, and I think what I see a lot too is um, a couple things like intellectually, there's this, this desire for I think the stuff that we're talking about, like psychological safety, I think there's this human kind of innate desire. Um, one, I think they don't know what that looks like in yes. practice all the time. Like yeah. it's a, it's a, it's a mental exercise, mm-hmm. a nice to have kind of thing, but what does that look like? And then two, I think a lot of times under stress, they default into that old, belief system, like, you know, and project out whatever's already in there without having done any kind of sifting or sorting inner work to understand it. They just default into those old patterns and beliefs and just lob them out, project them out onto people. (laughs) Um, And then, and that's how we recreate these systems. And that's how we get this kind of ongoing chronic stuff that we're, we're talking about. Yes. A hundred percent. And there's sort of two, two wishes. If, if I could, if I could have it my way, the, the two, two of my wishes with my work would be one that we start to index burnout as more of a leadership issue versus a well-being or mental health issue. I think it absolutely. Can have, yes, <laughs> I know. I think it, Preach. it can absolutely have mental health consequences. Right. But we tend to, again, zero yes. in on those and think that that is everybody's experience yeah. and it really isn't. Um, so so first of all, categorizing um, burnout as a leadership um, issue. And then, um, secondly, um, I shoot, I lost my, I lost my train of thought. What was the second thing that I was 
Well, we can just stop well, here and just unpack well, this. Well, I'll add to that. So, the, a leader should model appropriate boundaries, yes. right? I mean, that seems like a great oh, there's so point. Many <laughs> um, like we're because we're, we're you know one thing I do hear a lot is like, well, let's let you know. There's there's almost a cottage industry right now on books being written about you know make less have less meetings yes. Yes. or have yes. more focused purposeful yes. meetings. You know, but like a lot of leaders, like, you know, you know, like they get wound up. There's a stressful thing. Maybe they're spontaneous. They want to, you know, send out requests on the Slack channel at any time. Well, you know. I think there's several things that that, in my opinion, great leaders, not just good leaders, are, but great leaders are really asking themselves like mm-hmm. around these ideas of psychological mm-hmm. safety. Yeah. OK, so am I practicing humility mm-hmm. and am I giving getting feedback from my team? Am I modeling appropriate boundaries? Do I have realistic expectations and time frames? Um, I, you know, do I respect my teammates as whole people? I'm do I actually notes. care about yes. them? Like these yes. are, uh, how do I share power in, with my team? Um, so these are all things I think that that need to be at the forefront of what leaders are thinking and how they're showing up. And so not only what they're modeling, mm. but what they're yes. allowing what they're endorsing either by modeling it or reinforcing it, rewarding it or ignoring yes. it. Yes. And I, so I remember, I remember my yeah. second wish now. So, so first of all, it's the categorization of burnout more as a leadership issue. And second is the importance of coaching. And so I think companies right now are taking a really good first step in terms of let's have these conversations, right? Because I've noticed a difference now versus like two or three, uh, well, probably more like three or four years ago plus, where a lot of organizations would say, I know you talk about burnout, but we don't want to talk about burnout. And, you know, they sort of like tiptoed around the issue. And now they're like, everybody's burning out and we need to talk about this. Like, what do we do? Like, (laughs) Now we can't avoid it. That is right. The pandemic didn't start burnout. Um, Burnout was an issue, a a big, big problem before the pandemic. But now because so many people are in the same boat with it, it's, it's being talked about more, which is great. And so companies are starting starting with, with, you know, very good and very important one-off type programs, but there's only so much that a 60 or 90 minute program can do. And so to me, anytime you can also pair that with, with coaching, especially with leaders to get into exactly some of the deeper issues that you talk about so that you can noodle, you can noodle in there and help them understand what some of those mindsets are and some of those limiting beliefs might be. And, you know, are you really doing this? And then I can hear their perspective as well around, but this is where I I feel like my hands are tied. And so then we can talk through what all of mm-hmm. those challenges look like and, and come to a place for of what feels doable with concrete steps going forward. And so, yeah. Which is, I would love why I love your framework so much. There's an entry point yes. there. You know, that if you can start working with leaders and teams and how that, how there's all these overlapping systems inside an organization, then it really does. And we think about contagion mm-hmm. theory. Yes. Right. Like it really does start to impact the larger behemoth organization, but it, it can start small with a team and, an, and, and a leader that's making a decision to do the work and show Absolutely. up. Absolutely. This is awesome. Thank you so much, Paula, for, for being here, yes. being a part of this conversation. Um, we are going to put your book in our show notes. We're going to talk about it far and wide because I, um, I think there's been a big gap in this work. And your book is filling that gap. So thank you for your work. And uh, 
and for all the impact you've made on me over the last few years as well <laughs> with what you've been well, doing. Well, yeah, and you are very um, visible and easy to find, but where would you like to direct people? Where where would you like uh, people to find you? Sure, I'll, I'll tell folks my website, which is stressandresilience.com. So there is my hub for finding out the workshops, mm-hmm. my on-demand resource center. Uh, you can buy the book there if you want to. Um, there, that's just sort of the good entry point for all of all of the pieces of the puzzle. Well, we are, um, you know, having a series of conversations, always talking um, about burnout and from different angles. And this has really provided us with, uh, and and you've got some really interesting takes. And, you know, thank you for sharing this with our audience. I do have one quick question. Do you... Do you share your resilience inventory? Is that something is how do you use that? Yes, so it's in the book. So the whole the whole thing is in the book with the scoring. Okay. So that that'll be the easiest place. And I'm toying around with right now actually putting it up on my website so that people can take it and then I can collect the data electronically. But there's there's interesting like little um, you know, some legal language I have to put in there and it's some other little pieces that I have to tie up. But I do wanna end up putting that on my website so that people can download it and take it there. Okay, so for now, people can find it in your book and then check back when it will be on the website. Awesome. And here is the big self takeaway. While all change ultimately begins with you, the self, ultimately, the one approach to really changing an entire organization is to realistically begin with it on the team level. Teams are the microorganism, you could say, of any organization. And they are very much a key to being able to penetrate making a real change in a proactive way as we deal with the issue of preventing burnout. Pick any one way to up your game. Start with TNT tiny, noticeable things, just one thing at a time. And also remember, before you can really make a move in any direction, you need to create psychological safety and trust. To create psychological safety and trust, you can start by asking yourself these questions. Am I practicing humility and getting feedback? Something that's very hard for leaders to do, admitting that you don't know something. Am I modeling appropriate boundaries? Do I have realistic time frames and expectations? Do I respect my teammates as whole people? And finally, how can I give more power away to my teammates? Power dynamics in teams are so important, and sharing power leads to sharing ideas and innovating and more personal agency among everyone, not just the leader. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Big Self Podcast. Check out what we're doing at BigSelfSchool.com for all updates on our offerings, retreats, and seminars. We'll see you next time. 